50% of us will leave a job directly because of a manager. One study found that it takes 22 months for a direct report to recover from the effects of a bad manager, like physically and emotionally. That's Lauren Humphrey, the co-founder of The Mintable, and this is Wild Hearts. <laughs> Welcome to season three of Wild Hearts. I'm your host, Mason Yates. And this is a podcast dedicated to revealing the secrets from the founders looking to change the world. Let's talk about managers. We've all had one. We love some of them, despise others. Some have ruined our lives and others have made them. At a people manager's best, they inspire people to perform the best work of their lives. The question is, where do managers get the training they need to live up to these expectations? Today, I'm interviewing the co-founder of The Mintable, Lauren Humphrey. The Mintable is a community-based learning and growth platform for ambitious managers. Their vision is to inspire everyone to reach their full potential. Everything you need to know about this episode is in the title. I'm excited to share this masterclass in managing people with Lauren Humphrey. I am so excited to get a masterclass in management. Why don't we just start off with why is it so hard? What's the deal? Yeah, getting right into it. So look, I think being a manager, a people manager, whatever you want to call it, boss, is difficult for three main reasons. The first is that it is an entirely different role to whatever you were doing before, but oftentimes we treat it like the same role. So, hey, I was a great sales rep and now I'm a manager. And in fact, you cannot do any of the same things to be good as a manager of a sales team. And mm. so I think that's the first thing. We kind of set ourselves up to fail. Everyone does it. Yeah. Um, it's called the Peter Principle. So if you academics really? out there, yeah, want to look why? at it. <laughs> My brain went yeah. straight to like Peter Pan. Like you're always a child and you're never really like truly growing up into the manager. Furiously Googling why they named it the Peter Principle. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> So it's the Peter Principle is an observation that the tendency in most organizational hierarchies is for every employee to rise in the hierarchy through promotion until they reach a level of respective incompetence. They've named it after Lawrence J. Peter. Um, Lawrence. So, Lawrence, that's, that's <laughs> laws. So that's yeah. number one. Number two is that being a great manager requires, in addition to all of your hard skills, soft skills. And soft skills are things like giving feedback, setting expectations, checking in, reading a room, listening. I mean, it's just, you know, you name it. Most of our human interactions are soft skills. And, you know, it's really fascinating. Do you take any classes on soft skills in university? No. Business school? Nada. Nope. <laughs> when you start a job? Hell no. no. And so it's this wild thing where all of a sudden to be really exceptional at a role, you're having to flex a bunch of skills that you were never taught that most likely, and sorry for all the senior managers out there, you're observing being done wrong or maybe not consistently. And so it's just wild to have someone be good at something that they haven't been taught. That's two. Three is that the nature of being a manager has shifted radically. And even the past five years, you know, one, the new generation of employee, millennials, Gen Z, expect more from their companies. This has been fueled by a rise in distrust of governments. So there's some really cool data out there that basically says that people trust their governments less and less, especially in the United States. And what it means is that employees are turning to their companies for stability and answers to really big problems. And so you get, you know, the managers being the frontline response for the company, you get managers having to field things now like mental health issues, health security, home stability, really just all of these things that used to be quote unquote in the personal life are now coming into work. So that's one wacky item. Yeah, I mean, this, <laughs> this is why I'm excited to do this chat. Yeah, I mean. yeah, right. And then, and then the other is like a pandemic happened. There's also a war still going on, and then you know a possible recession. And so managers themselves are burnt out, and then I think humans, employees everywhere, are just dealing with things that no one has ever dealt with, and. Now managers are having to field all of those things and also possibly adapt to managing remotely or in a hybrid setting or try and force people back into an office. And so the third thing is just timing, man, what a time to be alive. And then what a time to try and manage people and motivate them to like, go finish 10 more support tickets. <laughs> <laughs> 
your, your background is in customer support, right? So you have the full authority <laughs> to take the piss. Yeah, my background is in yeah customer experience, customer success, and includes customer support. And sometimes you just think, wow, with everything going on, is this the thing I should be asking a human to do? And exactly. it's yes and also no. And so if a manager is a culture carrier and with all of those, I guess, rising themes, like part of me wonders, should the manager be lifting to those changes? Like where does the the line for the company and what's the manager's responsibility and what isn't the manager's responsibility? Yeah, so the way that we think about it at The Mintable is that managers certainly are culture carriers and they're also culture creators and they don't have to be culture creators. That is, you know, in lieu of feedback happening for themselves, they still Mm. give it because they know it's the right thing, right? So sometimes going above and beyond what exists in your culture, look, they don't have to, but I think if they want to get management right and they want to be great managers and most of the managers we see in the Mintable really do, they end up lifting their own standard. And I think most companies want to as well. It's just, there's so much that companies face right now. And for each of the things I talked about from the management perspective, the company is having to answer and address so much more across the business. So I think it's not that companies don't want to enable managers. I think it's just really hard to do sustainably and well, and also in ways that are kind of keeping up with modern parlance. I think it's a mix. I think companies need to do better and they need to better arm and enable their managers and support them. And I think the managers that want to be great are also naturally going to want to step up and be better. And so it's probably a bit of calm A, a bit of calm B. If everyone is different, then how does a manager deal with that while remaining either fair or whatever objective they're, they're trying to hold in their engagement across the people that they manage? Yeah. So gosh, yeah, everyone is different. That is true. And there are sort of root causes of people interactions that apply pretty generally. And so Mm -hmm. I think, I think the answer is, you know, at least what we teach is identify sort of the most common root causes of issues or root causes of things that could be great Mm -hmm. and really learn the skills. So for example, Rather than spend a bunch of time learning how to have hard conversations, spend a bunch of time learning how to set expectations. Because no matter who you're working with, the root of most hard conversations is that there wasn't actually an expectation in place. You didn't agree on it. It didn't land. But it's it's some sort of scuffle around expectations. And look, for those of you who have partners or roommates, the answer to your tension is probably also... an expectation issue. And so I think one is just figuring out those pinpoint areas where it's like, look, I'm just going to build that soft skill muscle and make this like a lifestyle. Like I'm just going to learn how to be an expectation setting machine. So I think there's some things you can do to set yourself up. Well, I had once a mentor who said, managing people is a lot like being a gardener. You can't give one plant heaps of water and a little bit of sun, but for another plant, heaps of water and a little bit of sun might be perfect. And so it was really about, hey, what are the key things that you need to learn about the people on your team to get the most out of them? We would call it like strategic care. So kind of understand how does someone like to receive feedback? How does someone like to receive recognition? What's their ideal day? So you don't keep scheduling meetings when they're trying to pick their kids up from school. Figure out what the core things are. And then also as a leader, at some point, you've just got to assess what environment can you provide? If you're a desert... (laughs) don't have like rainforest plants, you know, and it's not to say we excuse bad behaviors, but it's like, sometimes you've just got to be clear on who you are as a leader. And so I'm not like a, I don't give lots of gifts. My co-founder is the most amazing gift giver. It's like, oh, such a skill, such a skill. Oh, but the kind of love I give is like appreciation and recognition and coaching. And so I'm also super clear on that. So I think it's a little mixture of nailing the root muscle that you need to build and then figuring out what kind of gardener you're going to be and meeting your people where it matters and then also being you. So one of the key things there was setting expectations, which <laughs> is hard because like if I'm a new manager, I need to be able to know what the company's goals are. I need to know what my goals are. I need to know how they need to be successful in that role. And then I need to set those expectations. What are some actionable steps or key takeaways that people can go with to sort of synthesize all of that data and get on their way to setting clear expectations? 
Yeah. So, I mean, you've nailed it. I feel like you can join a mentor and start facilitating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What we tell managers in Manager Foundation is the first thing you've got to do is define success. And that doesn't mean that you're defining success for the business, though, based on your level, maybe you're participating in that. But you have to, at any given point, know what success looks like for each of the people on your team. If you don't, they will certainly not. And they will also make up random shit to do. So you best understand what success looks like. Especially if and they're that, hungry, right? Oh, yeah. Then they're just running wild. I've honestly, back when I was working in an office, have literally seen people meeting about things and gone in and been like, what is this meeting? And it's like, oh gosh, okay. Yeah, we got it. We need to define success over here. And look, the, the nice thing is there's so many different ways where you can define success. Like, yes, you can take your you know business goals, quarterly OKRs, if you have them, you might need to translate it specifically for your team. But step one is you just have to define success. Step two is you need to scan your world for clarity. So even if there's a success definition, oftentimes it is not as clear as you think it is with the folks on your team. I love thinking about the employee experience and setting clear expectations at every step in the way. So one of the first places I look to if I join a team, if I'm starting a team is job descriptions. You are literally telling the world what you think success looks like in a role mm. and then hiring people based on that. Well, that is a freaking great way to get the right people and start setting the right expectations. And then next, you can kind of follow the employee through onboarding. Hey, what does success look like at 30, 60, 90 days? If they're junior, every day. And then finally, like I said, a lot of these skills are more like a lifestyle. You don't just set an expectation once and then people will be off to the races. We like to think of it as use every opportunity you can to reinforce expectations. I love a good weekly Slack standup. We have one at the Mintable where people are saying what they're doing. And it's a great way to know if we're all on the same page. That's a great way, one-on-ones, writing them down in one-on-ones. Your company might have like a goal or expectation system. Great, use that. At any given point in every meeting is always an opportunity to say, here's what success looks like and here's the expectation. So mm. yeah, I would just kind of rinse and repeat that cycle. And if someone ever tells you, hey, you have told me what success looks like too much. I can't take it. Great, stop. But you will never, ever hear that. Yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> that would never come out of my mouth. Can you imagine? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> you shut up. Stop telling me how to win. Yeah, that's too much, you know. And we sometimes do get folks who say, well, what are my senior people? I don't want to micromanage them. And it's like, awesome, great. Why don't you ask them? Like break down the third wall. You're not like in some drama where you're play acting to them. It's like, hey, is this the right level of expectation setting? Do you need me to clarify anything? Hey, is, do you want part of this to be autonomy and setting the goal and telling me what success looks like? It's like, cool, just ask them. Love and that. then e even then they'll tell you, yeah, actually, can we spend a little more time <laughs> defining mm. this? Yeah, so that's what and I recommend. There's a few routes to go down, but one of them will be, there are a lot of people who are spending a lot of their time as individual contributors, and then they're asked to step into management. And it's really hard to allocate the time and investment that needs to be set up to really unlock whoever you're managing. Do you have any tips on how someone should balance those conflicting priorities? Yeah, those are super tough positions to be in. We call it player coach. Mm. You're still doing the stuff and then coaching on the stuff. I think part of it is just saying, I am going to make time to get good at management. And that may mean that some of the IC individual contributor player work has to drop. You don't just do it without telling anyone. Mm. You go to your manager and say, hey, are we on the same page that in order for me to be successful, the most important outcome is that I am amplifying the team. And then the second is that I'm doing strong IC work. And if they say no, then that's a good conversation to have, right? Because then it's like, okay, well, let's talk about how I can do this. They will most likely say, well, probably a little bit of like, well, do it all. And yes, I agree that it's fair to trade off, you know, maybe you do 20% less of X. And so you get alignment first with your own manager about the trade-offs and can come back to them and say, hey, look, it's still not working. I need to get down to 50% of these activities that are individual contributor. Great. So now you've got, you've given yourself some actual sort of buffer permission license to spend the time there. 
then what I recommend is being super mindful, like get the training. And I know, of course, coming from me, that's rich, but truly get the training because yep. soft skills are just not a normal thing for adults to do. Like I have feedback for you. Who wants to give feedback? Like it's terrible. Like I mm. don't want to tell another adult human being why not? <laughs> what I what I think about their work. Why is it I mean, so hard? Speaking at like a general yeah, level, yeah. like why is it uh, not a okay. naturally occurring event? Look, and actually I, I do love giving feedback, <laughs> but, but it goes back to our BFF expectations. Basically feedback without clear expectations in place just feels like a judgment. So if I'm like, mm, I don't like that shirt, that just sounds like a judgment. But if I say instead, hey, Mason, we've agreed that at the Gap, we will only wear white t-shirts. I've asked you several times to wear a white t-shirt and you know, you're continuing to wear a shirt that isn't, it's just not an appropriate shirt. That totally changes the feedback, right? Yeah. It goes from, yeah, just a random comment to, oh, right, gosh, okay, yes, that's part of the expectation. I think it's actually that the harder work hasn't been done and then people go to give the feedback and then it goes terribly because it's about something random or the person doesn't understand what it's about. Yeah, I think that's why feedback ends up becoming this thing people have PTSD about. It's because yep. they just went in for the feedback because someone told them, be a manager that gives feedback. And they started to, and it's like, it feels damaging as opposed <laughs> to what it should, which is like, hey, if I'm giving feedback, it's because I want to help you succeed. We need the definition for success in order for it to be good feedback. But once we have it, ah, oh, mm. great. Lauren wants me to do well in my role. Heck yes. Great. And what's the difference, sorry, and and what is the difference between micromanagement and setting clear expectations? Ooh, look, it's blurry. And I think it's one of the reasons I love to like, just ask the person, hey, how does this level of involvement feel to you? So that's always like such a nice (laughs) way to make sure you're not doing it. Like, let me just ask the person. But And you alluded to it before (laughs) as well, like what would success look like for you? And then putting it back on them and just making it collaborative and then calibrating on what the company expects. I'd love to pull that thread further. Yeah. Well, and and the thing is like nine times out of 10, someone will always want more involvement than you think. Like autonomy feels good and we love throwing it around, but autonomy becomes very sad and distressing when, (laughs) you know, two weeks into a project, all of a sudden you're having to meet with the person a bunch because they're off track. So it's like a great concept, but I actually think you can give someone more autonomy by spending the time up front, going really deep on what success looks like. And then it's like, great, we both know where the goalposts are and we've agreed how we're going to interact for you to get there. And look for more junior people or for someone who's doing something for the first time, or perhaps it's high stakes, like presenting to the board, perhaps your involvement is more. So you do a bunch of aligning up front and you say, Hey, Does it sound good to have a weekly check-in on the path to getting there? Yeah, absolutely. Or if you're giving this sort of romanticized autonomy, hey, does it look like part of the scope is for you to define the goals and for you to define our cadence of check-in? Yeah, yep, it does. And then the expectation is that they're going to nail that and that's part of it. So, you know, to answer your question simply, the difference between expectation setting and, and micromanagement is that you do all of the expectation setting up front as opposed to during the process, which is what micromanagement results in, right? Like, oh, no, that wasn't what I wanted. Oh, God, we have to meet because that's not what I wanted. And that's when all of a sudden you're like, not the coach just saying like, cool, they're running the play. You're like that crazy soccer parent that's like, kick the ball to the left, to the right, you know, and just like getting called off the field. Yeah. It's not a good look. No. (laughs) It does put you in instant panic. Instant panic. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> and how do you think about like some companies, it's high performance at all costs. Other companies, it's about creating a friendly, fun, freedom thinking environment and culture. And ultimately, everyone wants to maximize productivity. I guess what I'm really trying to ask is, is there a, a right way to achieve high performance, especially at the manager level? <sighs> I think the way that we think about great management is that the job is to help someone succeed in their role. And extra credit is that you hope to help them succeed in their life, like have a positive impact on their life. But let's focus on my job is to help this person succeed in their role. 
And what that means is your company is going to define in part what success looks like, right? Like with cultural norms and values and ways of working. So as a manager, you've got to take that into account. So if, you know, a company insists we must have fun in all that we do, then, okay, well, part of what success looks like is going to involve some degree of fun and feedback will involve, well, that wasn't fun. Obviously, this is a ridiculous example, but I think it just comes back to that mantra, really just figuring out all the things that you can do to possibly help someone succeed. And at the Mindwell, we've got what we call five dimensions of great management, which are aware, care, prepare, share, and dare probably over-influenced by my toddlers and reading too many (laughs) kids' stories. But I've got a simple mind during the day when I'm busy and stressed. And so, you know, it's like, what do I need to be aware of in our environment to help this person succeed? How can I care for them? How can I understand them, get the most out of them because I really get them and what makes them tick? What do I need to prepare? Definition of success, expectations, great meetings and touch points, perhaps resources and coaching. What do I need to share? So hammering in those expectations, giving feedback, setting context, motivating, coaching. And then what do I need to dare to do? Maybe I need to push the person. Maybe I need to dare to say, you know what, team, we are taking a day off. Everyone's maxed out. Maybe it's daring to clarify the thing with that cross-functional team that's been lingering or make a hard call. I think we think of all of those things, though, in service of how do we help our individuals and and our team succeed? So it ends up being sort of agnostic of culture because you've got to bake whatever culture into that definition. I suppose that's how, in a nutshell, we would think about it. What's the right way to let someone go? (laughs) This is not legal or compliant information. No, look, every, every geography has different compliance protocols. Every organization does. So we'll say that as a disclaimer, because I don't want people just going off tomorrow and letting people go. But I think the first thing comes back to, you've got to have clear a clear definition of success and you've got to be sharing expectations. A lot of like the worst sort of performance situations come about because you haven't, and then it's too late or the person's been underperforming for many months. And when you haven't set those expectations clearly and you don't know that they've landed, that's where you just get those horrible situations of, okay, this person hasn't been hitting goals for three months. I'm not even sure I conveyed the correct expectations. And so now I have to tell someone that they're not meeting expectations that they didn't know about. And it happens all the time. And so I think the best thing you can do is prevent those moments. Because when someone's not performing and you've made it clear what the expectations are, that's when you get those sad but beautiful situations of a coach out. like. Yep, we agreed. It's still not happening. Well, it looks like I should probably go. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think so. Look, and if you're in a bad place where you didn't set expectations, they didn't land, or it's contentious, that's where it's like, cool, you have your stakeholders, you and your manager are BFFs, your partners, HR is a BFF, because you've loved up on them as a stakeholder. And you can say, look, here's where we are. Expectations haven't landed, or honestly, I never really set them or they just refuse to accept the expectations. We need to put together a performance plan or whatever you want to call it, where we lay them out in a way that they cannot debate. We let them know how they've been doing. And then we give them tiny baby periods of time to prove themselves on these things and a really tight feedback loop where eventually, even then, if you do it correctly, sometimes people still will then say, oh yeah, okay, yep, this isn't for me. Yep. And then every once in a while, you end up with the, okay, so this isn't for you, and we're going to call it. So, yep. but see how it goes back to those beautiful basics. Yep. And um, it's a it's a realization for both parties. And it's like, this isn't yeah. the right match. That's the magical way to have someone exit. And it just comes back to the success, expectation, yep. feedback. What's a tight feedback loop? You know, As in like, how, how long would it be? Yeah, yeah, sure. It depends. I mean, if you have someone who's very junior and the feedback is like, you know, maybe customer facing, then it's totally fine to say like every day we're going to check in on your tickets and, you know, I need to make sure that what you're saying to customers is appropriate and correct, you know, as an example, or, you know, lines of code are fine or, you know, like whatever, if if it's sort of urgent, then daily is totally appropriate. As long as you lay that out and you're not like, feel like harassment, like, Hey, every day we're going to check in. It could be weekly if the work requires a week or there might be ebbs and flows in the days, but like, Hey, you didn't make 200 calls this week. Let's talk about why it can be literally that tight of a feedback loop. And ideally if it's someone more senior and that's where it gets tricky, 
you can still break down big concepts into smaller increments of time. Like, yeah, look, I want you to be able to set a strategy, but we're actually going to break the strategy doc up into four weeks. And I want you to be able to, you know, achieve these things at the end of each week so that you don't get into that fuzzy territory of a month later wondering, wait, what, Mm. what were you supposed to do again? What do managers do or can they do to see through people who are really good at managing upwards and separate the fakers from the doers, especially those who don't have that skill set and they don't manage upwards and have that relationship necessarily? Yeah, this is such a tricky one because we do talk about the line between being political (laughs) and just doing the right things that you need to do to be effective in your work. And I think playing the game of like politics or being good at managing up, people eventually see through that stuff. So I think what we'd recommend is we like to say, look, treat your manager, your own manager, i.e. managing up as a stakeholder, like any other stakeholder. And I think sometimes new managers forget that. Like it's almost Mm -hmm. like, oh, it's my manager. Therefore, like they're here to kind of serve me and I'm just going to show up to one-on-ones and like, you know, baby bird, like, uh, you know, it's like, no. (laughs) You're an adult working with this other adult. And yes, maybe they've got some position of power relative to yourself, but you're just two adults who spend a lot of time together. You have goals in common that you plan to achieve together. So when you put it like that, you're like, oh, reframe. Mm. And two, what do we need in our relationship to be successful together? Because again, we're going to spend a lot of time together and we are going to own goals together. And so when, when you reframe it like that, it's like, oh yeah, I better come to our one-on-ones as partners in this thing that we're doing together. You know, I should actually engage you in how do you like to work? How do you like to receive information? If I've got an emergency, should I call you or do you just prefer me to wait? Right. So it's like, when you start thinking about your own boss as a stakeholder and engaging them in that way, it's not about politicking. It's just like, how the heck was I not doing that before? Like, how did Mm -hmm. I ever think this was going to be a successful dynamic? And like, I think the fakers out there kind of get by because they use things like flattery and over-communication, but like that runs dry. And I think organizations move too quickly now for a lot of that stuff to work. So yeah, I'd say treat your manager like a stakeholder and like a partner in achieving something together. And if you're a manager within a set of other managers, what would be the right way to ask for more resources? Well, which kind of resources are we talking about? I need more headcount. I'm also thinking from like a, hey, I am a, I don't know the word for it, but you're basically a manager who doesn't have the technical expertise in some area and you need to sort of allocate more funding to hire for that role and sort of putting your ego to one side and then them creating that role in many ways. Or like if your job is to try and show that there are huge bottlenecks in your team and you can't achieve certain output, you're also like trying to find that money somewhere and there's X amount of budget. (laughs) So like there is that political tension too. Yeah, definitely. So, well, this is where, you know, I mentioned the concept of stakeholder. So we encourage all managers to create what we call a stakeholder map. So that's who's important to the success of yourself and your team. And it's not meant to be comprehensive, like every person that you pass in the hallway, it's like the big people who are responsible. And it can be groups of folks too, like maybe you're part of the growth team. So it's like the sales team. Okay, fine. But you write those down and then you answer, okay, what goals do we share? Does that person know that? Often they don't. Do they agree on the priority of this goal and how do they like to work? So in addition to your own manager, we recommend adding the other stakeholders. So that's first. And that's not political. That's literally just like getting them on the map and making sure you're engaging them. Because one of the pitfalls of new managers is they like go to finance, ask for something. And finance is like, who are you? I don't understand the goals you have in mind. And now you're just asking for something and look, everyone else is too, right? And perhaps you haven't asked how they like to work. So maybe they prefer a one pager in a Excel, you know, or a Google sheet with like a quick calculation. You're not going to get something from someone if you haven't even tried to understand how they like to receive information, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not politicking. That's just like, I don't know, right common thing. sense, but it, but it can feel like politicking because we look at our people before us and it can look like that. And so great. Okay. You've got your stakeholders. Now you know how to work with them. 
And then the next thing is, well, when it comes to resources, get smart. That's why aware is the first dimension of great management. It's like, how do you ask for resources in your business? If it's not clear, then work with your manager and your stakeholders say, hey, look, we don't actually have a way of requesting this. What can I show you to make the case for this resource? And they may say like, no, it's not going to happen. We don't have budget. And you're like, oh, great. Well, I won't waste my time. Or they'll mm-hmm. say, huh, let me get back to you. Right. But so I think just getting aware of how resources, how you make the case for them. And then because you've done your homework and you have your stakeholder relationship and that's been built out, you've engaged your own manager. By the time you go to ask for something, everyone's got a pretty good working idea. You've done it in the right way. And then look, if there's just not budget or if it's not a priority, then it's not like political. It's just like, yep. 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 <laughs> I've got to say the theme keeps coming up, but it's like, you have to begin with the end of mind. I don't know if you've read Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Back solve from where you want to go and then tell all the necessary people about it. You just save so much headaches. I've put myself on like a book hiatus because I write the mintable stuff. And so I don't want any IP issues, but Mm. it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. Like, yes, everyone's different, of course. And that's what makes humans beautiful and all the things. But at the end of the day, it's like, I think soft skills got marginalized at some point. Like I, some point need to find where in history did they get that name? And, you know, but I think, you know, the hard skills you always hear about first principles, problem solving, critical thinking. And I think with people dynamics, you can do the same thing. It's like, I need to get something from someone. Well, I, yes, ask them how to give them that information, Mm. understand the process, you know? So I think I don't know why it happened, but I think all of these soft skills can be systematized in much the same way you would solve like a finance problem or something like it. That's super interesting. So there are so many different Myers-Briggs personality types, and I'm sure half of them don't have the soft skills that you're referring to. Some people have a better propensity of building those skills. What are some of the things that the Mintable offers, but even just more generally, how do people build those soft skills and and why do you think about it in a product sense? Yes, it's interesting. I mean, I think Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, Gallup, Strength Finder. I mean, I think all of those are amazing because they give people a common vernacular for describing common characteristics in humans so that it's like more comfortable to say to my co-founder, hey, Mel, because you're introverted and need time to process, I'll share stuff in a document before we meet so you have time to process, right? And that's the thing. I'm an external processor. So sometimes I'm like, am I doing the thing where you want me to shut up? And she's like, so like, you know, luckily for Myers-Briggs, we can normalize (laughs) what would otherwise be deeply dysfunctional. So I I think they're really helpful. But what I would say is I think there's this misconception that great managers are nice. That's a lie. And I think there's also a misconception that shy people or quiet people can't be great managers. The only kind of people who probably aren't going to be great managers is the people who just don't care about others. Look, that's not a judgment, but like, if you don't care about people, like they're just not interesting to you, then yeah, that's going to be, (laughs) you're going to be in a hellscape, right? So otherwise, if you care about others in some way, then I think the great thing is that soft skills can be learned by anyone. You may have certain characteristics or tendencies that make certain parts of management harder. So for example, introversion. Mel is super introverted, but you know what introverts do well? They prepare. Sometimes I'm flapping my mouth and boring the hell out of my team. Whereas Mel is like a freaking laser. And it's like, oof, she's just like a legend. She's just always right on point with stuff, right? And Mm. so- It's a different style, but we're conveying the same information. And that's because we've both learned the soft skill of maybe motivating or setting expectations. So suffice it to say, call me excited. As long as you care about people as a base requirement, you can learn how to be a great manager. I mean, that's why we built the Mintable. We started to see when we did user research, these crazy patterns in humans and managers and organizations across departments, literally all over the world and industries. And that was the one of the aha moments of like, oh my gosh, I think all the problems are kind of the same and we can be wise and receptive and responsive to cultural differences because that's a fascinating component and different parts, like in different aspects of diversity. 
And I think we can help people with these just root core skills. And mm. um, yeah, so I, you know, that, that's certainly what has inspired us to, to do this and be global from day one and, and also start thinking about how to productize the concept of management. Mm. I'm, I want to touch into that, but I have to follow up. <laughs> what is the, the vision for the company? <laughs> Share that and how the product is currently working. Yeah, definitely. So our vision is for essentially everyone to reach their full potential. We want to inspire everyone to reach their full potential. And our way of doing that is by developing and supporting great people managers and creating a community where they belong. So mm. that that's what we're after. And <laughs> Mel and I, we're not technical. We're like, none of the rest is an engineer. And so we knew we had a problem to solve, that managers are ill-equipped for their role. And so we got started by doing something we could do. We started with cohort-based learning on soft skills. And the idea was, look, maybe that's the thing we scale and kind of techify. But we didn't think so. We think that we thought there is room beyond training to help managers. But we got started and we got great feedback that, yes, training is important and also insufficient. So from there, we went on a journey to figure out, okay, well, what the heck do managers need after the training? And part one is community. Just an, It's like a support place to go. When we did user research, most managers, when asked where they go for help, answered Google, books, my partner, sometimes my manager. I was like, oh my God. Like this person is responsible for amplifying a whole function and they're Googling how to manage like that is tragic, tragic. So that, okay <laughs> tragic especially especially the like you can imagine the reports coming up on that <laughs> yeah like no one has ever been like yes google a like area of domain expertise and that's how you should do it well right like no one yeah. ever and then poor partners i feel like we've all been those it's like okay so we're... The, the guiding <laughs> light <of> management <laughs> yeah right exactly like oh man so we're like all right we need a go-to place we think you know it's important for managers to be together so community and then we learned as we started to research with our amazing customers our man amazing managers oh my gosh they just want what is totally reasonable they want awareness and feedback in their day right now they get feedback maybe never but often, you know, during engagement survey results and performance reviews, that means that our most critical, like not critical as an important, but like most amplifying humans in the business are getting feedback about their soft skills and abilities, like every six months, maybe every year, which is crazy. Mm. And so we realized, well, what if we followed them into their day and we gave them the mintable all the time, and then also continued to give them the training and the community where they could come you know, as a go-to resource, no matter what. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to use AI to follow managers into one-on-ones as a window into management and essentially be a coach and not a creepy one. The, the one-on-ones won't get recorded and kept to be weaponized, but we'll use them to at least surface up insights to managers in real time and then redirect them to best practices and trainings and community. And so for us, we feel like we can literally be that partner to managers which then for businesses becomes being a partner to their biggest amplifiers and just taking the mystery out of management and not, not letting behaviors and habits pile up over, you know, six to 12 months, but helping them when they really need it. What's an example, that, especially <laughs> when some of the problems appear to be chronic where <laughs> rather than acute ones, meaning like I didn't set expectations up front, everyone's hacking away. And then boom, time for a tough conversation because I failed right at the beginning. Look, I think some of the basics would be easy to overlook, but even just like giving managers insight about, are you having one-on-ones consistently with everyone on your team? That's not always a given. And so just insight into that. Things like, what is your communication in one-on-ones? Are you dominating conversations? Well, maybe, you know, ask some questions. Sure. Like, you need to understand if like your expectations are landing. If you're mm. just talking the whole time, it's not going to happen. And then I think the beauty of AI is that, well, <laughs> the struggle with AI is that it takes time to be really good. But the beauty is over time, we can start to, you know, analyze patterns of one-on-ones and really start to get more and more refined on, do we know that certain topics are not coming up? And you know, let's say you had four people on your team, we can start to surface like, hey, you've actually had conversations where you've talked about goals and, you know, expectations with three of your people, but for some reason you haven't with so-and-so. And that might not be bad. Maybe, you know, to the manager, it's like, oh yeah, that's for a reason. But 
it also could equally be like, oh my gosh, we've been talking about their dog that died and I'm in overcare and oh my gosh, we haven't actually had that conversation. And so it's kind of like, you know, aura ring or Fitbit, like you don't necessarily need to be told you had a bad sleep last night, but it's more that patterning. We think managers will be able to see their blind spots and it becomes really powerful over time because we'll be able to see ebbs and flows and benchmark against other managers. And so it's just sort of, yeah, that awareness we think managers will really benefit from. And they're smart. They'll be able to make calls on what they think is happening. And, mm. um, you know, it's just the stuff that can get lost when you're a busy manager and dealing with all the stuff we talked about right at the beginning of, totally. of this beautiful time together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> are you, are you, do you need a jet? No, I'm fine. <laughs> okay, good. Because I, I still want to, I still want to tackle a few more things. <laughs> and so, like, first of all, obsessed because every day counts. And as the manager, you're carrying the culture, and those micro interactions count. And each one adds up, especially if you're blind to it. And like, yeah. oh, I know. Need that tool. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, um... it, it's almost like this, this insurance mechanism, right? On like your behavior, you're giving permission for feedback to give feedback, but also just, it's almost like a self-awareness mechanism. Yeah. yeah honestly, like <laughs> I don't want to become that, like the guru with what the top knot and, yeah. you know, but it, but it, it is a little I'm bit like, like, we could just, we could jump for hours. Yeah. No, but like, it is a little like selling awareness, like, like giving awareness. And, yeah. But I feel like as we learned from our managers, like that was the missing peace like we can train them till we're blue in the face but if they don't actually know where they need to flex then it doesn't matter that's exactly mm. when you go and you lose it like what one of the companies we love internally is grammarly it's like you kind of know if you're a bad speller yep but it's Guilty. what really matters is like when they're there for you at the exact right moment to tell you like oh yeah mm -hmm. cool yeah mm -hmm. great Imagine if Grammarly was like, we will give you a report every six months about all of the grammatical errors you've made in your writing. <laughs> I would be out of a job. That's without a doubt. That's literally what's happening right now to these poor <laughs> managers. So, so, so we're, we're very excited. And I think the other big thing that we think a lot about is really revolving around managers. There's so many tools in people tech and HR tech that are incredibly important. Like we love HR and people teams. It is like a gift to me that we get to be their partner and you know work with them. But those tools are designed for the company. And of course, that's good. But there are so few tools out there that are designed for the manager and built around, hey, how do we help this human? And so I think we're really excited too about continuing to just be what we have from the start, which is like really that partner, you know, for managers, by managers. Because we think, yeah, we think that's just a a gap, which just totally. seems so wild. Like we always joke, like, I think we may have found like the world's best kept secret, yep. but that is felt by everyone. You know, like 50% of us will leave a job directly because of a manager. Wow. That's a wild takes, number. <laughs> yeah. One study found that it takes 22 months for a direct report to recover from the effects of a bad manager, like physically and emotionally. <laughs> oh, I got <laughs> I mean, you know, like there's some bad people out there, but we don't think there's bad managers. It's just like they're untrained, they're unsupported mm. managers. And mm. yeah, great managers are not born. And so it just, it feels like just this crazy cycle the whole world is in and continues to be in. So, you know, you can imagine why Mel and I, two tired moms living mm. across the globe from each other thought, hell yes, we got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one thing stood out to me at the beginning there, which you mentioned that neither of you had a technical background and that has been a positive constraint to the way that you've evolved because you knew what the problem was, but not the solution. So why don't you lean into and share how that has benefited the trajectory of the company so far? Yeah, sure. So, well, I mean, asterisks, we're a startup, so you never know what's going to happen, but I think neither of us being able to engineer anything meant that we couldn't build a solution in search of a problem. And the only thing that we could build was, you know, some no code stuff that, you know, is sort of infinitely malleable and moldable relative to laying down code. And I think it enabled us to get feedback really quickly. So, you know, we got into StartMate at the beginning of June, 2021. 
Mel was still working, I wrote Manager Foundation, our first accelerator. And, you know, in July, we started our first cohorts. And mm. so, you know, in like a month or so, we were getting feedback from the very people for whom we wanted to solve the problem. And within another month, we were getting paid by them. And also at the same time, accessing information about how else we could possibly help them. So it ended up being this thing where we were able to be surrounded literally by our customers, get their feedback quickly, and also start to figure out what else to build without having to write a single line of code. Now, look, I think we were lucky in that the status quo, like the bar so low, like Google Books, it was an industry where it was possible to do this. You know, even like going to Harvard, it's like Google Docs and mm. Books and Zoom maybe. So, you know, like <laughs> luckily for us, it was a place where it was totally fine to have lower tech. And yeah, we, I think we were just able to learn so much. And then I think we also had the benefit of hiring an engineer and a head of product that were really well suited to the problem we ultimately knew we wanted to solve. So we kind of had this, you know, gift, like our, our head of product, she spent six years at Atlassian, four years at Google and has her PhD in natural language processing. Wow. Our head of engineering is a data engineer, which is essentially just incredibly important to what we're building. And so even that, and it was wacky, you know, we had plenty of investors <laughs> tell us, you don't have a product. <laughs> <laughs> And I, would I wonder who that would have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at every investor on the internet and anyone who is in Blackbird. <laughs> <laughs> I joke sort of, but yeah, it has worked so far. And I mean, look, we're so excited to release the product yeah, because that's the future. And, but I think the really cool thing for us too, is that we've learned the tech enabled services that we have will stay because mm. it'll be a differentiator. So I think there is some good thinking behind it and then also some luck and some industry specifics, but it's worked for us. And what have been some of the surprises or lessons that you've taken away from building this early community of managers and what keeps them around or what is the heartbeat of these <laughs> accelerators, I guess? Yeah. So for the people who are experts in community, they will all laugh and be like, boring, Lauren, this is of course, you know, but we, we learned like you can't reverse engage the people. So in the beginning, we were just so <laughs> thrilled with ourselves that the accelerator was out the door and some, they were just so tragically bad. So if you're listening and you were part of them, thank you for sticking with us. But then we'd be like, now engage with our community. And it was like, they're already gone. We haven't set the expectation, learning oh. from our own, learning from our own <laughs> damn self. And so it's like, Ooh, I know. Let me define what success in our community looks like. Let me set the expectation before they leave the accelerator, how they should engage funny how your own advice can come and bite you back. So I think that was one big lesson and we're still learning. Managers are extremely busy. And so I think the more we can in these accelerators that are essentially kind of like souped up onboardings, the more we can kind of program them to refer to community, use community, rely on community, the better engaged they'll be and it will just feel like a habit. So I think that's one of the big lessons. The other is I think we were trying to be almost too academic. I think they do like coming to us for things like, hey, what are best practices and like skip levels? That's something that came up today or 360 degree reviews. But like some of the topics that are fire are like, what sci-fi books do you like to read? I mean, that question right now is just popping. There's so many responses <laughs> like we may have to do like a full on blog post about just <laughs> what sci-fi books. <laughs> are interesting to mental managers. You know, we have almost a thousand managers in this community. So this is almost oh statistically relevant, but yeah, there's like 25 replies about sci-fi. So I think another thing is like realizing what we know, but we just have overlooked, which is that the job, the job is so hard. Like maybe also the mintable is an outlet, not always <laughs> a place to be professionally excellent. So I think those are two. And the beauty is, we are going to keep learning. <laughs> what I love about that is like, I mean, at Blackbird, one of the founding ideas was founders helping founders. And when founders get together and they help each other, especially when they're like six months or a year ahead, like magic happens because you just have this like super 
available person who wish they had you six months ago. Now you can do the same. And that's this sort of reinforcing cycle. And for you, it sounds like managers feel comfortable enough to cross the professional barriers and, and actually just get personal because you're sharing super similar experiences. Is that what you found? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, part of the reason the job is tough is that it's kind of an isolating and lonely job. You can be friendly and fun and maybe your persona is like the people's manager. But at the end of the day, like your team doesn't actually want to go to drinks with you. Yeah. Like they do for a second to hear your boring stories and then they want you gone. So they can talk about you like any good team should. And so what that means is like, where do managers get to go to talk? Because with their stakeholders, as we talked about, like, you know, you can have some really genuinely good friends near stakeholders, but like even that can be like, well, we're still professionals. I think it's actually just like, who are their peeps that aren't their partners and roommates at home or the, like, you know, their drinking buddies or their coffee buddies or whatever running buddies. Yeah. So I think, I think it actually is maybe a little bit of like, well, Hey, I need like a, just my fun team where I can be myself and kind of have to be a little bit more the the buttoned up self. So I think, but you know, the beauty of <laughs> everything we do is it's all just like one big experiment and we let our customers tell us what they want and we do our best to, to do it for them. I love that. And to round out the episode, what, what are you most excited about over the next 12 months? So many things. And maybe every founder says that, but like genuinely. Okay. First thing, I'm having my third kid in December. So I'm very excited. That is so big. <laughs> and I'm saying it because I want people to know that founders and CEOs can be pregnant. And they third can, kid too. Third kid. They can be crazy and have three kids. <laughs> They can be, you know, constantly fighting with their poor spouse who's deeply supportive. And for that, I'm grateful. I love you, Tom Humphrey. So I'm very excited about that. I am incredibly excited to release our product. I think it is just going to be a game changer. Of course, like any product, it will be, you know, like, like everything we not, do. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, you know, you know, it's, gonna, it's only going to get better. And so I'm just actually excited for it to, you know, be whatever it is, and then start the cycle of, of getting better. And then I think we are really starting to figure out how to partner effectively with organizations, HR, people, leaders, L&D, because I just love the idea of being their point of leverage, like their partners to then have a tremendous organizational impact. So it's just cracking that and, and just really figuring out how to reach them and tell the story and just become that indispensable partner. I know it sounds cheesy, but I just love the fact that we get to help organizations and their humans. And then our team, holy bleep, they are exceptional. Thinking about 12 months of them and everything will get to accomplish is just, it's so cool to think about and um, just getting to spend time with them as humans that how good is that? So that, that's Incredible. it. Lots to look forward to. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited for you on a personal front. Congratulations. Okay. And also on the professional front, what a mission. And thank you so much for joining us on Wild Hearts. Thanks, Mason. Super happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. If you left with more energy than when you started, we'd be super grateful. If you liked, subscribed, left a review, even shared it with a friend. In case you want to keep in touch, share feedback or even a pitch deck, I'll leave my blink card in the show notes for you to get in touch. Thank you so much for listening once again, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Godspeed.